In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come. That salutation is from John in the book of Revelation. The one who is, and was, and is to come is God. God to John means Christ, in whom God lived within the universe of his own making. We call God's life on earth the incarnation. The incarnation, Thomas Aquinas says, is the exaltation of human nature and the consummation of the universe. The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. That pronouncement was Carl Sagan's opening line in Cosmos, his, his famous 1980 book and public television miniseries. Sagan's student Neil deGrasse Tyson repeated it in his recent update of the series. Cosmos, word for word, replaces God, suggesting that science replaces faith in God. Scientism, we call that. Modern science began in 1543 when Copernicus gave evidence that the earth is not the center of the universe. On the revolutions of the heavenly spheres is the title of his study. In 1859, Charles Darwin published The Origin of Species, followed 12 years later by The Descent of Man. Approaching the 100th anniversary of Darwin's second book, Jacques Minaud, the founder of molecular biology and the winner of the Nobel Prize, published Chance and Necessity, a philosophy, he said, for a universe without causality. According to Minogue, the ancient covenant is in pieces. Man at last knows that he is alone in the unfeeling immensity of the universe out of which he emerged by chance. That isn't true. Man doesn't know that. And woman doesn't know it either. Scientism plays a pair of fours like they were aces. In John, the Gospel, Jesus says to Pontius Pilate, My kingdom is not from this world. Pilate had challenged him, Are you the king? That would put Jesus and Pilate in the same arena, competitors, like Sagan did with God and Cosmos. Jesus rejects the false equivalence. My kingdom is not from here, he says. So you are a king, says Pilate, missing the point. Like Sagan, Pilate sees only to the limit of his own expertise, in his case, politics where one king and one king only is the rule. Jesus indicates that with respect to him, to God, that rule does not apply. After publication of The Origin of the Species, an English bishop named Charles Gore 
gathered a group to think and write about questions that Darwin's science had raised for Christian faith. One of the group, J.R. Illingworth, wrote an essay titled, The Incarnation and Development. It begins, The last few years have witnessed the gradual acceptance by Christian thinkers of the theory of evolution. History has repeated itself, and another of the oppositions of science, so-called, has proved upon inquiry to be no opposition at all. Going further, Illingworth claimed the opposite of science-religion conflict. Darwin's science and Christian faith were mysteriously harmonious, he said. Our doctrine of the incarnation, incarnation, remember, the exaltation of human nature and the consummation of the universe, he said, that provides an outline to which science is slowly but surely giving reality and content. In my doctoral dissertation, I agree with that. Faith in God, as met on earth in Christ, sees the method that God has chosen for involvement with the world, and that method fits the science of evolution. This is Illingworth. Science may, <clears throat> may resolve the complicated life of the material universe into a few elementary forces, light and heat and electricity, and these perhaps into modifications of some still simpler energy. But of the origin of energy, it knows no more than did the Greeks of old. Theology asserts that in the beginning was the Word, and in him was life and the life of all things created. In other words, that he is the source of all that energy, whose persistent, irresistible versatility of action is forever at work, molding and clothing and peopling worlds. The two conceptions are complementary and cannot contradict each other. That is still a good answer to the sort of foolish talk that religion and science so often stir up. Religious-minded people rejecting solid science and science-minded people ridiculing faith. I have no quarrel with Minode's belief that our species emerged, so to speak, by chance. Because in comparing causes, chance is not an alternative to God. Where God is involved, one cause is not the rule. To illustrate, I like to bring up Harry Potter. As J.K. Rowling is caused to going-ons in Harry's universe, so is God to happenings in ours. God is primary cause, as Aquinas put it, the cause of causes. For example, in the first book, Harry, Ron, and Hermione chance to meet and share a compartment on the Hogwarts Express. Their meeting like this was happenstance, pure chance almost and yet so fateful for the future of the magic world. To say they met by chance is true, in one sense, while from the author's standpoint, it was meant to be. Aquinas says that God's will transcends the distinction between must and might not. For God, chance and necessity are writer's tools. Why do children fall in love with Harry Potter? 
As a dad, I was sent on midnight runs to bookstores from Hot Springs to Manhattan to pick up Kristoff's copy the second it was released for sale. He would grab it and read it through that night and hardly stop to eat or sleep until he finished. It was like he was thirsty for it. Max Weber might have had the explanation. Weber, the great pioneer of modern sociology, said that for people in the modern world, the universe has been demagicalized, disenchanted. Nicholas Wolterstorff, the Yale philosopher, says the problem with that is that it leaves the universe devoid of meaning. And that's what makes us thirsty. Secularism, we call it. Secular, in my dictionary, means of or pertaining to worldly things or to things that are not regarded as religious, spiritual, or sacred. Secular, sacred. In modern life, the secular is almost everything. Not only the stars and planets, but also life on Earth six days a week. Work, politics, music, sports, etc. There is a secular Christmas, too, not regarded as religious. The secular realm is an expanding circle on the floor, pushing the sacred back into its shrinking corners. We're meeting in one of those corners now. Unlike scientism, secularism has benefits. The big one being its practical solution to the challenge of religious pluralism. Plural means more than one. Ours is just one of many world religions. As policy, religious pluralism provides that religions should be allowed to peacefully coexist within the religious sphere. And that's good, but it works best when the religious sphere is small. When religion comes out of its corners from more than one direction, then we wind up with bizarre face-offs like the one at the state capitol last August, defenders of the Ten Commandments versus proponents of something pagan, sad, and awful, shouting angrily from both sides. That was a church-state carnival show. But serious religious differences have led to wars. Secularism makes quarrels less frequent and keeps little ones from becoming big. That's the dividend of disenchantment. Why is there more than one religion? One of my teachers, Christopher Morris, defined religion as how we position ourselves with respect to that which we hold sacred. Again, religion is how we position ourselves with respect to that which we hold sacred. Religions are faiths. Faith implies uncertainty, which leaves room for more than one answer to the question, well, what is sacred? And that's why there is more than one religion. Why would God leave room for doubt concerning something so important? I don't know. I do know this. Uncertainty makes space for choices. We choose our faith to some extent. A free decision for the beautiful and good is in itself a thing of beauty. It adds to the luster of creation. Without room for doubt, 
the world would be diminished. There is a sacred reason that our world seems disenchanted. And this reason divinely validates our science. Aquinas explains it in the Summa Theologiae in a respectful disagreement with Muslim theologians. He called them sages in Moorish law. Everything that happens, he said, these sages attribute solely to the will of God, from the creation of the stars to floods and forest fires. And to that, Aquinas says, well, yes and no. Yes, because as primary cause, God is everything's creator and the Lord of necessity and chance. But no, because to leave it at that would render nature useless. For everything that happens, the explanation would be the same. Well, it happened because God wills it. Science is left with nothing to explain about the cosmos. Aquinas rejects that way of thinking about the world and God because his senses, his reason, and his faith tell him otherwise. Our senses do because they can see and feel the difference between fire and water. Touch this, but not that, they say. The universe insists upon its own importance. And reason, if God is in both the fire and rain, then it is fire, not God, that burns. So let's try to understand a forest fire or flood with God left out of the apotheosis. And that train of thought led to on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres and the origin of species. Our faith in God's goodness completes the line of thinking. God could, of course, Aquinas writes, produce the effects of nature without nature. But nevertheless, he wills them to be done through nature so that order be preserved in things. And that's why we believe in science, not magic. From love, God gives existence to the cosmos. From love, he exalts and consummates it. There is goodness in the order of it, goodness in its freedom, goodness in the interplay of necessity and chance. Goodness in the fact we have a universe for science to probe and understand. It is a gift, full of meaning, seven days a week, and sacred to the core. <laughs>